Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, open them to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, we're on a verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews, and we're on the home stretch as Paul the Apostle, whom I believe is the author of Hebrews, is winding down his letter with the application of how to live out all the doctrine that he's taught us. And the application, you'll remember, is that the just shall live by faith that our trust in God will propel us and move us forward day by day, act by act, month by month, year by year. And remember, faith is not some leap into the darkness and just close your eyes and don't worry about what you believe, just place your faith in Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches and that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith has both substance and evidence. Notice in verse one of Hebrews chapter 11. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, and that it is referring to faith, by faith the elders obtained a good testimony. And that's how you'll obtain a good testimony. As you live your life trusting God at his word. As you live your life by trusting God and doing what it says, you too will obtain a good testimony. You will not be able to obtain a good testimony in your flesh or by reason or by logic. Like those men and women that have gone before us, we follow in their footsteps and it's by faith your ultimate trust in God that you too will have a good testimony. Then we come to verse three and it says by faith, remember the hall of faith starts out with us. We are in the hall of faith as believers. And so it's by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things that are seen were not made with things that are visible. And it's by faith that we believe that our origin started with God and he created everything out of nothing. It it was his power and his wisdom. And we believe what the Bible says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created, and we believe that. And as I taught last time, it's in verse three that a skeptic here and a critic there will stop you and say, now wait a minute, how do you know what happened in creation? How do you know? And you would say, well, I know because the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me. When I open up the Bible, it says God created, and so I believe. And so, wait a minute, you believe the Bible, you believe that God created the earth, wait a minute, how, how do you believe the Bible is true? Why do you believe the Bible? And then you'll probably answer, well, because God said to believe in the Bible, and it's there Well, someone will say, wait a minute, you believe what the Bible says, and you believe the Bible teaches God, but you then believe that God says the Bible, and that sounds like circular reasoning. And you may be taken off guard and go, well, wait a minute, maybe, maybe it is circular reasoning. Maybe, maybe I don't know what I really believe and perhaps I should step back and maybe question everything I've ever believed. And today I wanna show you that it, you do not have a life of circular reasoning. You believe God because you believe the Bible and there is much evidence, just enough, There's just enough evidence that God has reserved for us, both internally and externally, that you can believe that the Bible you have in your hands, the Bible you have on your lap, maybe reading it on your phone or your tablet, is trustworthy and reliable. And in the next few studies, I wanna ask and answer the question, why you can trust your Bible? Why can you trust your Bible? How do you know the Bible is true? Well, you know the Bible's true because God declared it to be so. And you know that God declared it to be so because it's true. And we know it's true as it supports, remember faith has substance and evidence. And because of the substance and evidence that God has left us, you and I can trust that the Bible we have in our hands, most of them translated in English, represents the original autographs that were written literally thousands and thousands of years ago. So today I wanna start in John chapter 13. You don't need to turn there, let me read it to you. Jesus is speaking in John 13 and he says this, verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. 
I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me is lifted up his heel against me, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what the scripture says. This is all fulfilling what was written before. And I'm telling you right now, so when it comes to pass, you will believe in me. And so the Bible is very important to Jesus. And that'll be the sum of our next study. But what Jesus is telling us here is that he trusted the Bible. He trusted the scriptures. The scriptures here that he's mentioning in John 13 is the Old Testament. You know, if you took your Bible, some of you may not be so familiar with the Bible yet, then that's perfectly okay. If you took your Bible like this and you opened it about three quarters, the left-hand side, three quarters of your Bible would be known as the Old Testament. 39 books, separated into 39 books. The right-hand side would be known as the New Testament, 27 books. And when Jesus is teaching there in the first century, when he says scriptures, he's pointing back to the Old Testament scriptures that were existent in the day. And he's saying, look, what the, old scripture, what the Old Testament scriptures predicted will be fulfilled. And I'm telling you right now, he says, I'm telling you about it right now. So when it does come to pass, you'll believe in me. That the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the word of God is shared, it leads to, really it only leads to two paths, either belief or unbelief. And with eyes wide open, the scriptures are trusted by Jesus and he believed them. Now, we don't use the word scriptures too much today. It's kind of a Christian word. What we would use probably is the word Bible. That's what most people are familiar with, the Bible. Now, the strange thing is, is if you look through every single page of the Bible, you know the word that you won't find in the Bible? Bible. But don't let that throw you because we get the word Bible from, like many of our English words, from the Greek, biblios, or from the Latin, biblia. And it's just a transliteration of a word that represents the scriptures that were delivered to us. And while many people might treat the Bible with reverence, and many people might treat the Bible with awe, only true believers of Jesus Christ submit their lives to its very teachings. And here at Calvary Church, like Jesus, we believe in the absolute authority and the absolute inerrancy and the absolute plenary infallibility and plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Unashamedly, we are not, like Paul, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also the Greek. And we make no apologies for the scriptures. We believe that it is the very word of God. This is an important distinction to make because you will meet some people that say, well, I believe that there is truth in the Bible. I believe the Bible contains some truth. Well, be careful there because we don't believe the Bible merely contains truth. We believe the Bible is truth, that all of it from beginning to end. Would you turn your Bibles over, hold your place in Hebrews, go over to 2 Timothy chapter three. 2 Timothy chapter three. We believe that the entirety of the Bible is valuable and inspired of God, that the Bible itself doesn't just contain truth here and there, because that kind of attitude then makes you the judge of the Bible, of what is exactly truth and not truth. And usually you know as well as I do that the truths that are dismissed in the Bible are not culturally popular and will get you in trouble and will place you in a place of odds with the culture in which we live. And don't misunderstand me. The problem of the world just doesn't exist in Western culture. The problem of the world is not just what the United States of American Christians or non-Christians view of the Bible. The resistance and rebellion against God is worldwide. Every culture, every language, every tongue, every, na every nation, anyone that's alive right now and breathing that hasn't placed their faith in Jesus Christ are living in a rebellious state. Sometimes we get stuck here just with Western culture because we live in Western culture, of course, we're influenced by it. But it's not just a, a USA problem, it's a world problem. We know that because Jesus said that in heaven, at the end of the age, 
that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. People will be saved from around the world. And many people today don't believe in the Bible, no matter where they were born or where they were raised or how they were taught. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're given insight on our belief in the Bible. And in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, it says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So let me ask you this question. How much scripture is given by inspiration of God? Say it out loud. All. I want you to learn this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And secondly, all scripture is profitable. And you'll see four things anytime you open the Bible, anytime you turn on Christian radio where there's Bible teaching, anytime you sit through a sermon, anytime you're listening to a podcast where the Bible's being taught, one of or two of or three of or maybe all four of these things are taking place as you read the Bible. Number one, notice that all scripture is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine, that's right teaching. That's where God teaches us about himself. He teaches us what's right. Secondly, the Bible is profitable for reproof, which by the way is why a lot of people put the Bible down. Because when you're reading it, you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's saying something about my life. Remember it was James that compared the Bible to a mirror. (laughs) And you know, you get up every morning, you look in the mirror, you may not be so happy with what you see, but that's what you look like. It's not the mirror's fault. Can you imagine? I can't, I hate you, mirror. Why are you showing me? Why? I need a coma to take a shower. It's all your fault, mirror. It's not the mirror's fault. That's you, bro. That's what we see. You know, when you take a picture, the first person you look for is you. And then you go, oh, no, that didn't come out well. Well, man, that, that's how we see you every day, all day. That's you. That's you. That's a snapshot of you. So it's not the Bible's fault that it reveals to you reproof. So if doctrine is teaching you what's right, Reproof is teaching you what's wrong. And let me just say the focus of what's wrong, God is right and we are not. And when we're reproved, there's something in us that God is saying, hey, this isn't right in your life. Thirdly, notice, all scripture is for correction. And I love that about God. It's profitable for correction. So not only on one hand does God show you what's wrong, but then he shows us thirdly how to get right. I love that. He doesn't just condemn us and say, oh, you know, you got everything wrong and and I hope you can fix it. No, God will actually show you in the Bible how to live a life that pleases him, how to correct what's wrong. And then fourthly, notice the Bible is profitable. All of scripture is profitable so that you might be instructed in righteousness. God teaches us how we're to live our lives in a right way, how to stay right until we meet him face to face. And then notice the summary in verse 17 is, so that you, man of God, you, woman of God, may be complete. Now, if you'd like to write in your Bible, circle that word complete, right next to it, mature. God wants us to grow up. Just like any expectation we have of a baby, of a child, as they grow up, we expect them to mature at a certain age level. Well, God, and as for us as followers, he wants us to be mature. And how does maturity come? But by the word of God. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by the word of God. It is his tool. It is the tool. It is the only book on the planet earth today that is alive and powerful, sharper than any tool. You can go down to Barnes and Noble at Southlands. You can pick up 20 books on how to live right. Uh, You can pick up 20 books about the Bible. You can pick up 20 books of people that wrote commentaries on the Bible and none of them have life in and of themselves like God's word does. It is life. The words of Jesus are spirit and are life and all you need to do is open it up and start reading it and God will impart life into you and he will grow you and strengthen you all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That, that, we know what that means? That means Leviticus is inspired of God and valuable. Because I know as the new year comes, you're gonna get so excited, we're gonna read the Bible this year, I'm gonna read Genesis, yes, Exodus, yes, Leviticus, no. <laughs> but without Leviticus, we would never understand God's heart toward the sacrificial system. We'd never understand God's heart toward areas of holiness and purity. Leviticus is important. Numbers is important. Zechariah is important. That, that means that all of the Bible is inspired. That means the black letters 
and the red letters. You know, there's a group today um, that are calling themselves the red letter Christians. And they're putting themselves, they're saying, well, the red letters are more important than the black letters in the Bible. And I understand a little bit of what they're saying in the sense that obviously we want to pay attention to the teachings of Jesus Christ because he's our savior, our Messiah. He's, he's, our, he's the one that's discipling us. He's our mentor. He's our pastor. I get it. But to separate the red letters from the black letters are saying that some of the Bible is not as inspired as other parts of the Bible. And that's not true because Jesus wrote Genesis as much as he did when he spoke when he was on the earth. All of the Bible. We don't just separate out Well, there's a certain part to separate out. It's all scripture is inspired by God. All of it. Have you guys got that yet? How much scripture is inspired? All of it. All of it. The ones you like and especially the ones you don't like. God's call to us is to receive his word, submit our lives to it, and obey him through it. So the Bible, the book, the word literally means book. That's all the Bible means. And it's actually, you could say, the Bible is books, not book. Because the Bible is made up of 66 separate books written by 40 different authors in three different languages. It was written on three different continents over a span of 1,600 years. 66 books, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, 1,600 years. And yet throughout the Bible, there is not one contradiction and yet there's only one central theme. All these authors writing at different times, different languages, different statuses. You know, they, the authors, the men of the Bible that were used to write it were from all different walks of life. David was a king. Moses was a shepherd. Joshua was a military general. Luke was a doctor. Matthew was a tax collector. James was the half-brother physically of Jesus. And so in their lives, God took people from every strata of society to write down and inspire them what he wanted to be written down. The Bible is the foundation of our faith, so we should expect it to be under attack today. We should expect people to criticize it. We should expect to meet skeptics and to undermine it. Why? Because it's the foundation of our faith. It is the very revelation of God. You know, if you just started in Genesis... In the first two chapters of Genesis, you will read over and over again, God said, God said, God said, God said, until you get to chapter three and you meet this serpent dude, that serpent's talking, and the serpent says something. He asks this question, has indeed God said? That undermining question. That's not a question of, well, you know what pastor said, and you're supposed to test what pastor said by the scriptures. That's a good question to ask. Like if you're sitting here today, well, you know, I'm not quite sure what you're saying is true, pastor. I'm going to check it out. Check it out. But that's not what the serpent was saying. What the serpent was saying is that even if the pastor's right, has God really said that? And he's trying to undermine it. It didn't take long in the history of man. For the Bible or the words of God to come under attack. Has God indeed said? And God has placed me here in this pulpit today, in this moment, to declare to you and remind you that yes, God has indeed said. That he has spoken in time and written it down for us. That he's delivered the faith to us according to Jude chapter 1. You know, Jude only has one chapter. And in verse 3 it says this. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. How was the faith once and for all delivered to the saints? But through the word of God. The Bible, alive and powerful. The final word from God. He's not writing the Bible anymore. The faith has already once for all been delivered to the saints. So he's not writing the Bible anymore. However, we know that as believers, we have the spirit of God living in us. 
And there is that manifestation of prophecy or the gift of prophecy so that when God will just inspire you, like, like you get this thought. I know it's kind of weird. You might be reading, reading in your Bible in Leviticus and it's like, yes, you will get leprosy. And you get this thought, man, I should probably send this scripture to Pastor Ed. And you're like, no, I don't think so. Leprosy. Why would I send him something about leprosy? But, but then you send it off. Why? Because you believe that God impressed that upon your heart. And you don't know what God's going to do with his word. And you're not responsible to know what God's going to do with his word. But where would you get that thought to send a scripture to a friend? Where would that come from? Where would it come from? It comes from God. And you're not writing new Bible. The New Testament gift of prophecy is not writing new Bible, but rather speaking forth the Bible that's already been written. You're not foretelling anything. That's already done. You are now foretelling so that if a person comes and says something that contradicts the scripture, immediately you can call them a false prophet. For example, if somebody comes to your door and says, hello, I'm your friendly neighborhood cultist and I wanna let you know that there is a brand new testament that you don't know anything about. You don't even need to, like there is no more new testament. There is not another testament. There is not another, you reject that outright. Or if someone teaches you something that's separate or different from what you know to be true in the scriptures, you reject that out. That is a false prophet. There is nothing new. There there is nothing new because the faith has once and for all been delivered to the saints in the scriptures. So let me ask you this question. Who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. You guys ready? Who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. But wait a minute, Ed. I thought men wrote the Bible. That's true. Now, when somebody comes and wants to undermine the scriptures, one of the things they'll tell you is that I don't believe in the Bible because it's full of contradictions. And almost always that puts you on the defense like you have to defend God. You don't need to defend God. You don't need to beat up somebody when they say, there's a contradiction here and contradiction there and just pound them in the sand. There are no contradictions. Don't ever say that. Don't do that. Don't become, I don't know, maybe it's our culture in particular, or like it's just so argumentative, like it's just so inside of you to win an argument and make sure people know you're right and they're wrong. But when somebody comes to you and calls out a contradiction, that's an open door for the gospel, folks. It's not a time to condemn them. Have a conversation with them, and I'm going to train you how to do it. You ready? When somebody comes, I don't believe in the Bible, there's a full of contradictions. This is how you answer them. Which one is troubling you the most? Which contradiction is troubling you the most? Let's talk about it. Where, where do you see that? And a couple of things will happen. They'll either have a standard answer that maybe you feel ill-equipped to answer, but I'm gonna show you how to be equipped in a second, or they've never read the Bible. They're just writing, reading something they saw on Google, and, and yet they're talking about the Bible, which is an open door to share the gospel with people. We don't need to argue with them. Let's talk about contradictions. Like, for example, you have to understand sometimes when people call something a contradiction, it's actually not one at all. For example, one gospel writer might give a, a, one gospel writer might be writing down that at a certain event there were two people there. And so as he's writing it there, he says, yeah, these two people were ministering. Another gospel writer records the same event, but says, yes, there was one person there. And you go, oh, contradiction. One says two and the other one says one. Contradiction. No, not so fast. Because I've learned something. And I'm sure you know this as well. It's profound. Wherever there are two people, there's always one. And so one author is focusing on two. The other is focusing on one. He didn't say there weren't two. He's just talking about one. That's not a contradiction. And so I want to encourage you If you wanna study this kind of stuff, I wanna encourage you to purchase this massive book here called When Critics Ask. We're not gonna have it in the bookstore because it's not in print anymore. You're gonna have to get a used copy like this one right here. It sits in the Grace FM studios for anyone hosting the show because it's one of the best books on Bible difficulty. I have a lot of books in my library on Bible difficulties, but this one to me is the best. The author is Norm Geisler, G-E-I-S-L-E-R. And you can get it on Amazon, get it used. There's a lot of used copies out there. And what he does is he goes through book by book and answers most of the common objections and supposed contradictions of the scriptures. And this is why I like him so much is not only does he just give you a canned answer so you can answer it, but he gives you a few options. And then he gives you the option that he's most convinced of which actually helps you to learn how to reason with people 
and helps your thinking. Not, not only knowing what you believe, but why you believe it. And so there's a companion volume to this too. It's, this one is when critics ask. That's the Bible difficulty one. The other one is when skeptics ask. And the two books together, I know one year I used this book just as my devos. And I read through all the difficulties of the Bible one year as a part of my devotional life just to learn. And sometimes I've even quoted this in a Bible study. Like he's done such a great job on it. I don't need to elaborate on it. I'll just say, hey, this is, what, this is an answer specifically quoted from Norm Geisler. And I hope you learn to chew on it and learn from it. So when critics ask, a great resource that you can use to grow in your understanding of how to deal with biblical difficulties, but there are no contradictions. Instead, there's one theme, and here's the theme of the Bible, you ready? God's undying love for man and his plan for man to have his sins forgiven and be restored in relationship with him forever. That's the theme of the Bible. From the very beginning in Genesis, we read of a loving, caring, compassionate God chasing after sinners. He's having relationship with them until they fail him. And instead of giving up on those that failed him, he pursues them. And that's the continued story, the scarlet thread of scripture, that by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed for you and me, God's pursuit of you can be over if you simply repent of your sins and receive Jesus as your savior today. 66 books, 40 authors, three languages, three continents, 1,600 years. Who wrote the Bible? God. Well, what if somebody says, no, I don't believe God wrote the Bible. Man wrote the Bible. If somebody comes to you and says, yeah, I don't believe God wrote the Bible. Man did. You say, you're right. Man did write the Bible. But God inspired them. He is the divine author of scriptures. And he used the agency of man, the hand of man, the quill of man to write down precisely the words that he desired to be in the holy scriptures. His revelation of himself to us. So many quickly dismiss the Bible because they say it's written by man. And then their mindset is they're like, well, in their mind they think that there's a big bonfire and Abraham, Moses, Paul, James, they're all hanging around the bonfire saying, what do you want to write? And what do you think we should put in? No, I don't like that. And they're arguing about what they can write. But obviously that's not possible because the authorship of the Bible spans 1,600 years. And they were in different parts of the world, different places that God spoke to them and inspired them. Do you know the Old Testament itself claims to be from God? Jot it down in Exodus chapter 24, verse four, it says, and Moses wrote all the words of Jehovah. Isaiah chapter eight, verse one. Moreover, Jehovah, or the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen. Over 2,000 times we read of men of God saying something like this, God said, or like the old King James, thus saith the Lord. 2,000 times in the Bible. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is claimed to be inspired thousands of times. Like the one we saw in John chapter 13, Acts chapter 17. 18 of the 22 books in the Jewish Old Testament are cited in the New Testament. We can trust the Bible because it's written by God and not man. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you one more thing before we get into the final part of our study today. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter adds to this understanding of the inspiration of God. How, how inspiration, that word inspiration, you could write next to it, God breathed. Just like God breathed life into Adam, God breathed life into the men that he used to write the scriptures. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, notice with me verse 19. Very important to grasp. 2 Peter 1.19 says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And so God, in his Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, wrote the Bible as they inspired and carried men along to write down exactly what he want, wanted us to know about him. And there's that cooperation between God and the men he chose to record all of his, all of his history, inspired and infallible. As people come and try to undermine the scriptures, I want to equip you to hold fast to the truth. And before we leave now, I want to give you four things, four different pieces of evidence that will give you a greater faith in the authority of God's word, both internal and external evidence. Enough where there's substance and evidence to place your faith. It's not some leap into the dark where you just have to suspend all your logic, all your reasoning. You know, God made you a logical person and a, reasoning, a person that reasons. So you don't suspend those faculties in your life, but rather they're surrendered to the facts that are presented. And while this is not, each one of these points could be a study in and of themselves, we're gonna briefly share them with you so you can hang on to them. And here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna use the word maps. And the reason why we're using maps is because it'll remind you most of our Bibles have maps in the back. And so you can remember by remembering the word maps, four pieces of evidence. And I'll just give them to you really quickly now. The M stands for manuscript evidence. The A, it refers to the archeological evidence. The P speaks of the predictive prophecy of the Bible. And then the S is gonna to speak to us of the statistical probability of all that encompasses of what we're learning. So let's start with M. And that's number one, the M stands for manuscript evidence. Now today there is approximately 14,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament that exist. And about 5,300 manuscripts of the New Testament Greek texts. And here's why that's important. A manuscript is a copy, and sometimes a copy of a copy of a copy, of which the manuscripts that are used in the original language is how Bibles are translated into a modern language. So that the English Bible in your hand is the product of translators, skilled men and women in the language that have taken the original language and translated into the English language that you and I can understand today. Because we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures in their autographs of what was written down. But we don't have any of the autographs today. What we have is representations of the autographs, manuscripts. Not only are there 14,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament, and why that's significant is when a person, when the Jewish people copied their scriptures, let's say they had 10 pages to copy. And so they, they copy meticulously, letter after letter, jot after jot, tittle after tittle, boom, 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 they're copying. They get through page one, page two, page three, perfect, perfect, perfect. They have nine pages that are perfect. They get to page 10, they're about three quarters away done in page 10 and they make a mistake. It's a little mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. You know what they do? They tear up all 10 pages and start over. They would only allow the copyist to have an exact representation of what was being copied. For the New Testament now, when we come to the New Testament, we have 19,000 different copies. We have the, the baseline of New Testament manuscript evidence and copies sits at about 24,000 pieces. Whether it's a full copy or a portion, they're all counted as one separate manuscript evidence. Now, you have to understand something. By comparison, people that we take for granted to people like maybe you were in college and they made you read Plato. Now I doubt that anyone here doubted that Plato existed and that he wrote what you read. But do you know that of Plato's works, we have seven manuscripts from Plato, nobody questions him. We have 20 manuscripts from the historian Tacitus. We have only 643 manuscripts and copies of Homer's Iliad. But the New Testament, 24,000. But let's just say this. Let's say we had no manuscript evidence at, at all, zero. They couldn't find one copy anywhere, any place they looked, zero. There's a group of people that we need, you need to be familiar with, and that is the disciples of the disciples. You know how Jesus called 12 to himself and one Judas ended up betraying Jesus? He killed himself. I believe he was replaced with Paul. Each of those 12 had a disciple themselves. 
and a disciple themselves. Just like you are teaching someone the Bible, sharing the gospel with them, it, it keeps getting handed down. In the first century, there were pastors and leaders that are commonly known as the early church fathers. The early church fathers. These were men that were pastors, they were shepherds, they were bishops and leaders, and we have written copies of their teachings. The first hundred years after the death of Christ, you've got men teaching and going off. As you read in the book of Acts, they take off and they go and all these different, we have copies of their teachings. And it's amazing that in the four gospels alone, just the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're quoted by the church fathers almost 20,000 times, the gospels. And other New Testament quotes in the early church fathers, 86,000 times. But check this out. If you were just to take the writings of the early church fathers and take out of them the quotations that they have of the Bible, of the scriptures, it would be like this. If I sent you, you go, oh, we lost the book of Hebrews. Nobody has the book of Hebrews. And I said, but I know how we can get it back. Go to the app and start listening to our teachings on the book of Hebrews. And every time I read the Bible, write down what I read. If you were to do that, we would be able to have a copy of the book of Hebrews up to chapter 10, really up to chapter 11, verse three, because I've covered that so far. So we would be able to have a full copy of Hebrews. If you now were to take, and somebody did somewhere, this was their life's work. Can you imagine that, their life's work? It's so awesome. They took the church father's teachings and out of the church fathers, they were able to have a full copy of the New Testament minus just 11 verses just 11 verses. You know what that is statistically? They had 99.86% of the New Testament that they wrote down just from the teachings of the early church fathers. Is there manuscript evidence for the Bible? Yes, there is. And it's overwhelming. Secondly, A, archaeology. This is really cool because the Bible, the Bible, this Bible here is a book really 66 books, but it is a one uniform book that is rooted in facts, history, naming times, lands, names, leaders, and a whole host of concrete time-stamped information. It is one of the joys of my life every year to take a new group, a new busload of people to Israel and watch them experience this for the first time. For example, one of the days in Israel, you can take off your shoes and socks, you can roll up your pants, and you can literally walk into and stand in the Sea of Galilee with a Bible open and do your devos, standing in the same place that Jesus was. We could take you over into the city of Jerusalem and show you the temple mount where the temple once stood. You'll be there. Like you touch it with your own hands. The foundation stones that were laid by Herod, some of them are still there to this day. They're massive. We'll actually take you underground to see massive stones from the temple mount. We'll take you down to Qumran, that cave where they found the scroll, almost a, almost a full complete scroll of the book of Isaiah that the Essenes wrote down. And then later, a few days later, we'll take you to Jerusalem and you'll go to the Israeli Museum and one of the buildings on the property of the Israeli Museum is a, is a, is a room dedicated to the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can see them. We actually had facsimiles of the Dead Sea Scrolls sitting on this stage at one time where you could come and see them with your own eyes. You know, for years, the skeptic said, we don't believe the Bible because it mentions Pilate at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And we really have no external evidence that Pilate ever existed. He's just a figment of your imagination. And because you believe in that, then the rest of the Bible must not be true. We'll take you to Caesarea Maritima right there by the water. And there'll be a stone sitting right there that you can go up and touch and you can hold, and you can take pictures of. You know what it's called? It's called the Pilate Stone. Because right on the stone, it says Pilatus, right there on the stone. But you know, that's not the original stone. It's actually a facsimile. So then a couple days later, we'll take you down to the Israeli museum. And you will send you back to the far corner. That's where they put it. All the way back in the corner. You gotta, if you don't have a lot of time, we always tell people, start there and work your way back out. 
go back and you'll see the original pilot stone that they found. And that museum there is not like museums there. You can actually touch it and it's there and it's accurate. As well as all of the other things that they found that date back to the Canaanites, to the Midianites. If you go to the Israeli museum, you go to the British museum, you go to the Greek museum in Athens, all the antiquities and artifacts that have been found that validate the Bible. You know, every time they go looking for something archaeological, every time their shovel hits something, it validates the Bible. Now, a lot of people like to say that archaeology proves the Bible. I don't, I don't necessarily look at that. You know what I say? The Bible proves archaeology. People have set their whole lives to disprove the Bible, using it as a guide to go find things. Well, like Sir Robert Ramsey. He, he said, I'm going to prove the Bible wrong. Guess what? God proved the Bible right and he got saved as archaeology opened up his eyes. You know, even today, when they do construction, the Israeli, Israeli Department of Antiquities is very, uh, they're, they're, they have tight controls. So let's say you want to build a hotel. And as you're digging in a hotel and your, your shovel hits something, all construction shot stops. And they come out to say, hey, what happened? What are you doing here? What's going on here? What did you find? And if it's something of value that validates the Bible, construction stops. And it could stop for years and years. You go, Ed, come on. Is that really true? <laughs> the Roman Catholics not too, many long, not too long ago wanted to build a hotel uh, just across from the Sea of Galilee. And as they were digging, their shovel hit something and they found an ancient synagogue and other artifacts in an area that proved to be the ancient town of Magdala. And so what the Israel Antiquities did is they made them build their hotel around the area and where the area that they dug is a new place that will take you. We didn't go years ago. We take you there now and you will walk in the literal place where the town of Magdala was. Remember Mary Magdalene? It's all over. You can see it with your own eyes. Archaeology proves the Bible, but really the Bible proves archaeology. Thirdly, and we're almost done. A lot of information. You think this is a lot? Next time it's going to be more. <laughs> P stands for perfect, the prophetic evidence, predictive prophecy. Prophecy is the calling card of God. Isaiah chapter 48 says, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear them. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Isaiah, carried along by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God is writing down the words of God and God says I say something's going to happen and I make it happen only God can do that Isaiah 46 verse 9 remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure predictive prophecy is powerful I'm going to give you this as homework because we're almost out of time, but in Isaiah 44 and 45 are very important chapters. Because when we get to Isaiah 45 verse 1, there's a guy named there. His name is Cyrus. He's named by name, Isaiah 45 1, Cyrus. And Isaiah says that a man named Cyrus will declare to the destroyed city of Jerusalem that you shall be built. And to the destroyed temple of Israel, your foundation shall be laid. But at the time Isaiah 45 is written, Jerusalem and the temple were still standing, still in existence. It was about 100 years later that both were destroyed at the hand of the Babylonian armies. At the time Isaiah 45 is written, Cyrus isn't even born, not even alive. Babylon was then conquered by the Persians in 539 B.C., and shortly after, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple 160 years after Isaiah wrote that prophecy. And there's prophecy after prophecy. Jesus himself fulfilled 354 Old Testament prophecies in his first coming. 354. There were 28 of them. 28 of those prophecies referred to how he would die by crucifixion before the Romans perfected crucifixion. Amazing, amazing book, which leads us to the last part, and that's the S in maps. Manuscript evidence, archeological evidence, 
predictive prophecy evidence, and now the statistical probability of all this coming together. What are the odds, is how we would say it. What are the odds that a human being or a group of human beings could write such a powerful book? How could it be possible? Well, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible never to be done. We learn when we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, what we're saying is, is that the Bible is divine in origin. It is divine in origin. It started with God. And he chose to use men to jot it down, but it started with God. It's a supernatural book. It's divine and supernatural and defies the critics. The statistical probability of the things that I've shared with you is undeniable and overwhelming. For example, if you just took eight Eight. And so when I'm talking to little kids after a service and they tell me how old they are, I always ask them, how many fingers? So I want to show you how many fingers. Ready? Five and three. If you just took eight, and I just want to bring it down very simply, that's how many. You have enough uh, fingers and toes where you can count to eight. Just eight of them. Not 354. Just eight prophecies referring to the first coming of Messiah, of Jesus Christ, that he fulfilled. If you just took eight we can conclude that the odds of eight, of one person fulfilling eight prophecies and they're coming to pass in one man's life are one in 10 to the 17th power or one in one with 17 zeros after it. Peter Stoner, in his book called Science Speaks, he put it this way. If we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, we took that many silver dollars and we laid them out across the state of Texas, that they would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Now that's an overwhelming thing for us to think, state of Texas, it's huge, it's huge, it's just amazing, it's a huge state, huge state. So let's just take it down, and, and the numbers aren't the same, but let's just say that this room, just this room right here, 17,000 square feet, that's all, 17,000, it's not the state of Texas, not the state of Colorado, not the city of, it's just 17 little thousand square feet in this room right here. If we were to take silver dollars and bury them, uh, put them on the, in this room, two feet high, silver dollars, two feet high, and we colored one red, and we just had one red and we mixed them in and then asked you to come in. You got one shot in this room, 17,000 square feet, two feet thick. You have one shot to find that silver dollar. And when you expand that beyond the state of Texas and say you got two feet, just go ahead and wander around and pick one. Those are the odds that one man will fulfill eight of those prophecies, just eight. I mean, let me give you a few of them. Let me give you a few. The prophecies Jesus fulfilled, this is just a few of them. He was born of a seed of a woman, predicted Genesis chapter 3, fulfilled Galatians 4. He was predicted to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, fulfilled Matthew 1. He was predicted to be deity, son of God. He was predicted that in Psalm 2, fulfilled Matthew chapter 3. He was predicted to be the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22, fulfilled Matthew 1. He was predicted to be the son of Isaac, Genesis 21, fulfilled Luke 3. He was predicted to be the son of Jacob, Numbers 24, predicted, predicted, fulfilled Luke 3. He was predicted to be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, fulfilled Luke 3. He was predicted to be of the family tree of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11, fulfilled Luke 3. Of the house of David, Jeremiah 23, fulfilled Luke 3. He was predicted to be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. Fulfilled, Matthew chapter 2. He was predicted to be presented with gifts, Psalm 72. Fulfilled, Matthew chapter 2. Even when Herod kills the babies, that was predicted in Jeremiah 31. Fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. The Bible is an amazing book and it will change your life if you'll read it and do it. God will change your life through his word. And there is ample evidence that will build your faith Yes, it's true. God inspired some 40 different authors to write his holy scriptures over the span of 1,600 years. They were written in three languages. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew and in a full pl few places like Daniel in Aramaic. And the New Testament was written in the first century, what's known as the Koine Greek, the language of the day. They wrote on three different continents spanning over 1,600 years. And the next time we're together, we'll study very precisely. We're going to get a laser out, and we're going to learn from Jesus 
what he believed about the Bible. Because that's really the issue. The issue is, do you believe what Jesus Christ said? Because he came not with the word. You know, Jesus didn't come just with the word of God. The Bible declares Jesus to be the word in John chapter 1, verse 1. And so it's important that we grasp, well, what did Jesus believe about the Bible, which will be our next study, uh, our t- study next time. So let's stand together. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, the worship team's gonna come up in a moment and we're gonna sing this song and the pastors will be up here to pray with you and encourage you because that's the big deal. If you're with me so far, then let me give you the final part. The final part is this. The Bible declares that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all failed and separate from God, but that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you and for me, that Jesus, he paid the full weight and brunt of the penalty for your sin and mine so that we can have an exchange of life, his perfection for my imperfection, his forgiveness for my failure. His, his righteousness for my unrighteousness. And if you're here today listening on the radio, watching online, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you do that today, we would encourage you to humble yourself and give your life to Jesus Christ today. You can do it this way. You could bow your head right now and you could say, God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I acknowledge that my life is not right with you. And I dedicate my life. I want to follow you. I believe, Jesus, you lived, you died, and you rose again to save me and my soul. And I'm asking you to help me turn away from my sinful past and live my life for you. And Father, I know anyone that would come to you in humility and brokenness. They don't have to be a scholar, a Hebrew Greek scholar. They don't need to even own a Bible. You can save to the uttermost. And may you do that work of salvation in our midst today as we worship you and are grateful and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.